When the Buddha said, do what is wholesome, avoid what is unwholesome, this wholeness is within every experience. It's just a matter of us being sensitive to it, open to it, and aware of it. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction. How they feed their good wolf. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest is Steve Hagen, founder and head teacher of the Dharma Field Zen Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Steve is the author of several books on Buddhism. Among them is the brilliant Buddhism Plain and Simple, which was one of the top five best-selling Buddhism books in the United States. In 2012, Steve updated and revised his first book, How the World Can Be the Way It Is, and published it as Why the World Doesn't Seem to Make Sense, an inquiry into science, philosophy, and perception. This episode is sponsored by Health IQ. To see if you qualify and get your free health quote, go to healthiq.com slash wolf or mention the promo code wolf when you talk to a Health IQ agent. And here's the interview with Steve Hagen. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Eric. It's a pleasure to have you on. I read one of your books, Buddhism Plain and Simple, years and years ago. I think probably when it first came out, and I've revisited it a couple times over the years. So it's a real pleasure to get you on and talk with you about it. Yeah, well, I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. Well, let's start like we always do with the parable. There is a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second and he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Yeah, well, that's uh, an interesting story. I hadn't heard it, uh, you know, before you contacted me. Um, but of course, uh, we all want to feed the good wolf inside us. The the problem I think that we have is kind of hard to determine um, uh, exactly what is good and what is bad. You did outline a few things there, uh, examples of of goodness and what is bad. But yeah, uh, this isn't so easily discerned. There's a an interesting Taoist story. Um, of a Chinese farmer, a wise Chinese farmer. And uh, one day his horse runs off. Actually, this is in in my book, uh, Buddhism, Plain and Simple. His horse runs off and his neighbor comes to console him that he lost his horse. But the farmer said, well, who can say what's good or bad? And the next day the horse comes back uh, bringing some other horses with her. And 
now the neighbor comes to congratulate the farmer on his good luck. And the farmer says, who can say what's good or bad? And uh, it goes on like this. The next day, the farmer's son breaks his leg, trying to break one of the horses. And uh, the, the neighbor says, well, you know, <laughs> commiserating with with the man. And uh, uh, But the farmer just keeps saying, who can say what's good or bad? The next day, the army's coming through, conscripting young men for the for the army, and uh, they pass over his son because he's got a broken leg. And uh, so it just goes on like this. Who can say what's good or bad? I've heard this story told by people saying the farmer just says maybe, maybe good, maybe bad. But uh, I think it's a little bit more powerful uh, when we get down to what he's saying there. That Who can say? Who can say what's good or bad? You know, I always think of the those buildings in New York back in 2001 when the planes flew into the buildings. And, of course, we would all say that this is bad. But, of course, to the people who flew the planes in, they probably thought they were doing something good. And we can find all kinds of examples of, of this. Uh, just last year on the during the campaigns, somebody uh, asked um, the heads of one of the networks about uh, giving so much uh, – airspace to uh to donald trump and uh and he said well you know this might not be good for the nation but it's good for us he said and uh you know so here we are good and bad and uh pretty difficult to discern and i listened to a couple of your uh, other interviews that you did and i i noticed uh uh one person it was uh, sean carroll very interesting fellow i really uh you know like him what he had to say uh, but he he observed correctly, I would say, that it's hard to be objective in, in terms of determining what's good or bad. And I would agree with that, except uh, there is a way of, without expecting to arrive at some kind of objective uh, uh, view of good or bad, there is a way of viewing this that can actually get us out of our confusion. And rather than casting it in good and bad, if we just simply look at it in terms of wholeness, and uh, and what is unwholesome. And this brings us, you know, the, there's a teaching in the Dhammapada where the Buddha said, he just simply put it as, do what is wholesome, avoid what is unwholesome. And he said, purify your own mind. And then he said, this is what the awakened teach. There it is in a nutshell. Do what is wholesome, avoid what is unwholesome. In Zen, we have the pure precepts, uh, which my teacher used to express them in this way. It's just simply do what is wholesome, avoid what is unwholesome, consider the welfare of everyone and everything you do. That's a way that uh, helps us to avoid any kind of one-on-one -on -one confrontation between good and bad, which I think anyone, if you stand back and look at it and get uh, separate yourself from your own attached views, can see that, well, it's hard to say that that itself is good. Yeah, they have that duality. Exactly. Another thing that uh, you wrote talking about the Buddha's teachings, one of the things you said was that when Buddha was asked to sum up his teachings in a single word, he said awareness. Yeah. Not awareness of something in particular, but awareness itself. Can you talk to me about that difference between being aware of, say, like the color of the wall or the sounds that I'm hearing and being aware or, or awareness itself? Yeah, normally we're we're so used to we're highly conceptual beings, and 
So we immediately conceptualize our experience and uh, see things in, in terms of form and color and and also uh, different ways in which feeling and, and thought get mixed in with all of that. But this is awareness of objects, awareness of the conceptual. And uh, pure awareness is just simply that. It's not formed in any way whatsoever. This is what I think the Buddha was speaking of there. It isn't that you're focused on something else. With that kind of a focus, you also having a strong sense of self at the same time. But just simply to um, be aware of, tune into, uh, settle down with the actual raw experience of this moment. And uh, uh, that's kind of a general awareness. And I would refer to this as perception. And it's not conceptual at all. The conceptual is something where we try to describe what it is we're experiencing. We feel like we have to say something about it. But we actually can't describe the actual immediate direct experience of the moment. It's like tasting orange juice. You know, we know it immediately, but it's not a concept. It's not an idea. It's a direct experience. And um, there's no way to describe it. If you had never tasted orange juice, there's no way I could describe it to you so that you would taste it. Uh, this is something that has to be done directly. And so awareness uh, like that, just simply aware of what is the immediate, direct, unformed experience. In a different book, you refer to uh, perception as knowledge and conception as belief. That's kind of what it boils down to. <laughs> and, and we confuse uh, what we believe with knowledge. This has been an ancient problem. It goes all the way back to the, to the ancient Greeks and probably before that, how do we parse out belief from knowledge? And um, again, the problem that we have is um, because we're so caught up in the conceptual and we're not paying much attention at all to the perceptual or to immediate direct awareness. Right now, I'm just finishing another book uh, where I get into this rather heavily and um, uh, really spell it out in quite a bit of detail. And so what we're talking about here when we say perception versus conception is perception being I am present in the current moment. I'm here now. As you said, I'm just experiencing the raw sensations that are coming from my perception without categorizing them, putting them into concepts, labeling them, judging them as good or as bad. I'm just simply aware to them. Is that a way to sum it up? Well, actually... Uh, what you just described is still conceptual, and mainly because uh, you referenced everything in terms of I, me, ah. and you know my my perception. Uh, strictly speaking, with pure awareness, there's no such thing as my perception. There's just perception. Once we get to uh, my perception, now it's it's conceptualized, and and I'm formed, and then there's something else out there formed as well, and so uh, pure perception. Uh, is a very it's a very subtle thing, though we're always experiencing it. It's impossible not to experience it. Uh, it's it's with every waking moment of our life. Well, more than that, <laughs> yeah, it's just continuously with us. It's just that the gap between that and the conceptualizing is almost non-existent for most of us. Right, most of us we're, we're so quick with the conceptualizing. Uh, that we don't even realize that there is any distinction here to be made, you know. And and we and we also uh, intensify that with uh, just the way we talk. Like I'm sitting here in front of a microphone now, and I I might say something like I perceive the microphone, 
uh, well, that's how we would normally talk. I would never say that. Well, I just did, but uh, <laughs> I would never. <laughs> I don't. I realize that uh, the microphone is something conceived by me. It's it's a conceptual construct, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I also don't mean to set out one against the other, like uh, perception is good and conception is bad. We need conception. We need the conceptual. But it's just that we can't arrive at truth that way. Truth doesn't go in the concept. But we can see it directly, and, and we omit that. We overlook it uh, simply because we so quickly wrap everything into a conceptual construct, and we miss the actual immediate direct experience that we that we know from moment to moment all the time. Is that part of what you would say meditation helps to do is to allow us to get some gap between that perception and the conception? Yeah, well, that's uh, what the meditation is. That's how we start out. We tune into and settle down. It's quieting the mind, settling down to what the actual experience of the moment is without adding anything to it. And, and at some point, we can start to become more discerning and realize you know, how much we are adding uh, to the experience of the moment, how much we're explaining to ourselves or just assuming in a conceptual way. And we're constantly uh, acting out of that and, uh, and not really tuned into what the pure experience is. So the meditation is just simply settling down in the actual perceptual experience. This episode is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ is an insurance company that uses science and data to help you get lower rates on life insurance if you're health conscious. If you're a runner or a cyclist, if you do strength training, vegetarian or vegan, Health IQ can help you to get a lower rate on your life insurance. Health IQ can save you up to 33%. Because physically active people have a much lower risk of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes compared to people who are inactive. This is like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver. Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. 70% of their clients get approved at the top rate class, and they are the fastest-growing life insurance company with over $5 billion in coverage. One of the things that you do when you sign up is to take a quiz about your knowledge of wellness, and that helps contribute to your discount. I took it and enjoyed it, and I am working with these folks right now, an agent right now, on my life insurance, and they are absolutely lovely people to work with and have been very friendly and very fun to work with. So to see if you qualify and get your free health quote, go to healthiq.com slash wolf. You can also mention the promo code WOLF when you talk to a Health IQ agent. That's healthiq.com slash WOLF to save money on your life insurance.
Before we get back to the interview, I want to mention that this episode is sponsored by Casper Mattress. And at Casper, mattresses are perfectly designed for humans, engineered to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. And as they say, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. And to create that comfort, Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Now, Casper has three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, all of which are very affordable because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to the consumer. Casper has no hassle returns if you're not completely satisfied, and shipping and returns are free in the U.S. and Canada. So start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash 1UFeed and enter the code 1UFeed at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's casper.com slash 1UFeed and enter the code 1UFeed at checkout. And here's the rest of the interview. You use the word enlightenment. You say it's nothing more or less than seeing things as they are rather than as we wish or believe them to be. Do you think that enlightenment is something that happens for people semi-regularly? Is it a pretty rare condition? What What's your thought on that? Oh, it's not rare at all. I was going to say different people have different thoughts on that. You have to train for so many lifetimes before this could happen. and you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, actually, enlightenment is with us all the time. It's just that we're we're never tuned into it. It's actually our true state. Uh, you know, if, if if we would just settle down and not uh, play with so many different things, or at least if we would start to recognize what we're doing, and and so we don't allow ourselves to get emotionally caught up with uh, uh, too many things, forming attachments, all of that. Uh, the enlightenment is is right there, but. With that, it's really the perception itself. It's just that with enlightenment, we've kind of brought in the element of understanding, knowing, realizing uh, what is taking place. But of course, people could easily interpret what I just said as bringing in the conceptual now. That wouldn't be enlightenment because the enlightenment is the actual perceptual itself. But it is knowing reality. And it isn't something foreign to us because we actually all know reality. You could not not know reality. It's all we ever experience. It's just that we, um, in conceptualizing it or attempting to, we go with that, with all the various things that we form, including ourselves, and uh, and pay virtually no attention uh, to what is actually taking place, what is actually happening. So let's go back to that idea of self for a minute. You're you're talking about the the Buddhist conception of no self, and one of the ways that you describe it in the book that I think is great, well, actually, I guess the Buddha described it, and you're just passing it on, but what we call a person, the Buddha referred to simply as stream. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's just that the actual moment, uh, experience of the moment is stream. It is, uh, nothing is holding still. There's nothing persisting. A self would have to be something that doesn't change. And if we look carefully at the experience, moment by moment, there isn't anything that doesn't change. Everything within the experience, all thought, feeling, objects, uh, everything appears to be coming and going. The Buddha described himself, the term he used to refer to himself, uh, rather than saying me or I, he used the term tathagata, which uh, literally means coming and going thus. And uh, what he meant by that is that the experience is nothing but this coming and going. 
just as we find it. And, and so that's what he's uh, referring to there rather than saying I or me, which is a mistaken view of uh, that. Well, I am something here that's persisting from moment to moment. We talk about, well, when I was five or six or whatever, but it's still me. We, we have this idea that there's some th- element here that's persisting from moment to moment. But if, if you look carefully at your experience, you realize you'll never find that thing. That's just a conceptual construct that we live by. If we're tuned into the actual perceptual experience, it appears as continuous flux and change, but there's actually nothing changing there. In describing the idea of stream a little bit, you give the analogy of a book, you know, the book that you were writing. Could you share that analogy? Because I think it's a very helpful way to think of this idea of everything sort of being in flux and also it being really difficult to determine where to draw a line, that this thing begins and this thing ends. That's what the conceptualizing is, is that where we do draw the lines. And these could be very functional and useful. Again, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, there's nothing wrong with conceptualizing. We need, we need to conceptualize. But if we look very carefully at the experience, though, you'll, you'll see that there's actually no line, <laughs> no border, no, no boundary that we can actually discern beyond the conceptual so in other words, the actual perceptual experience doesn't give us any boundaries uh, like that. And this is something we can even notice uh, if we really tune in. I like uh, an experience I once had lying in my tent at night and listening in the deep wood there uh, in the distance was a, an owl. And, and in unpredictable way, I, could, I never knew when he was going to hoot next, but uh, just lying there in the tent and listening and uh, I noticed that uh, either the hoot was hooting or it wasn't. And it was like, uh, even though it seems like now there's a hoot and now there isn't, so it would seem that there would have to be a boundary there. And yet, uh, just lying there really tuned into it and focusing on it, you can't really f- find that. And, uh, and that's, that's getting in with the perceptual uh, experience. Uh, just noting very carefully. So there's nothing really bounded at all, Uh, though our experience certainly appears that way. And we don't deny the appearances, and we don't um, ignore the appearances. It's very important that we tune into these things. But we do make the mistake of thinking that the way things appear to be, bounded and separated from other things, um, that's actually more of a mental construct than an actual reality. An ultimate reality. It's an apparent reality. I call it smaller reality. Or, or a friend of mine once used the term seemality. It's, it's, it's how things seem to be. And I don't deny that. Yeah. The analogy that you used um, about a book was you, you were saying, you know, how, how do I tell this book as a, as a distinct thing? I mean, on one hand, here it is in my hand. But, you know, the paper came from a tree. So is the tree, consi- you know, is the paper part of the book? Is the tree part of the book? Is the water that, that came down to make the tree? Is the fact that you were taught by somebody in order to be able to write that book, you know, and that person was taught by somebody. And so that all these things flow into each other in a way. Yeah. And again, on one hand, it's easy to say, this is the book. You can hold it in your hand. But at the same time, it's also not just that. It's everything that has to happen, all the events that occurred all along the way until that thing comes. And so, and that's the idea of, to some extent, when you don't put a conception on something, you are able to see that unfolding. Yeah, yeah. And and, 
so you, you can realize that within any small uh, sphere or, or object or whatever that we find ourselves in, or uh, everything is there. Everything comes together uh, with it. Totality is there. And, and this brings us back to, to wholeness again, uh, which I talked about at the very beginning, and talking about the two wolves. And uh, uh, if we look carefully, this wholeness when the Buddha said, do what is wholesome, avoid what is unwholesome, uh, this wholeness is within every experience. It's just a matter of us uh, being sensitive to it, open to it, and aware of it. And we, we can also see the divided and fractured and, and all of that, the unwholesome, the, the, those things that appear to be unwhole. Uh, and we honor that, we respect that. But uh, if we look carefully, we realize that these are not two different things. This world ultimately is without... Uh, such boundaries, but they are apparent. They are there in the conceptual form. You know, so we have to honor that. Right. It's sort of part of what makes life functional in the way that it is, is being able to do that. But it's, yeah. as you said, it's not the only way to see things or necessarily the bottom line truth of it. And I always think that's interesting. It's kind of like the the self, no self question, because on one hand, when that comes up, and this was my reaction for a long time, was like, well, that's ridiculous. Of course there's a self. Here I am, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so on one hand, in a, in a relative sense, right? Yes, there, you know, I am here and I am, you know, doing these things. But then at a deeper level, at a different level, it's, you know, it's more what you've talked about. It's the stream. It's the, the everything moves together as one thing. Yeah, you can't pick out that individuated thing, you know, right. myself, Yeah. And we, we actually don't use the term no self, because uh, that's kind of going to an extreme, just as we would avoid using the term self uh, in terms of grasping anything or thinking we've gotten hold of something by using the term self. We also avoid grasping at the other extreme, which is that there's no self. We tend to speak of it more as that we just simply don't find a self. And again, a self meaning that thing that doesn't change. This is what we don't find in our experience. So it's not that there's no such thing as a self or whatever. It's just that, you know, what are you going to point to? <laughs> right. We do talk about big self with totality. Yeah, it's always thus. Uh, but that's not an object. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. One of the things we talk a lot about on this show is living by your values. To do this, you need to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've always found therapy a really powerful tool for getting clear on what matters to me the most. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com feed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot feed.
If you're enjoying this conversation, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. We are nearing the end of it. Wish you could keep listening once the episode ends? Well, I've got some good news too. You can. The interview continues over at oneufeed.net slash support. There, if you pledge at the $10 level, you'll get access to this additional exclusive content as well as many other bonus conversations that have been recorded with our guests. We really need and appreciate your support, so we hope you'll head over to oneufeed.net slash support and pledge to access this additional weekly content. And now, back to the interview. One of the things that you reference and you say is that picking and choosing is the mind's worst disease. Yeah. Talk about what you're getting at there. Yeah, that's that's from the uh, Xinxing Ming early Zen poem by the third patriarch of uh, Zen in China. He starts out by saying, um, the great way is not difficult. There's nothing it prefers. It's often translated as uh, for those who have no preferences. But he's. if you look at the Chinese, it's closer to saying that the great way itself uh, is without preference. So in our conceptualizing mind, where we divide things out, and now we start evaluating them. Some things are, we think are good and some are bad, and, we, and, and some things we want, some things we don't want. And we start picking and choosing. And Sen Song, the author of, of that piece, Sen Ching Ming, he says... Uh, yeah, that this is the mind's worst disease, and it leaves us, um, we easily get caught up uh, in a lot of frustrating and difficult situations, or even terrifying and frightening and painful. Whereas if we uh, kind of look at the larger uh, picture, the larger experience of what's, what is always being experienced, uh, we can learn not to get caught up in these distinctions. We need to... Uh, honor them with the distinctions, but we don't need to uh, let them carry us away. The other thing you talk about, I think similar to choosing or preferring this or preferring that, you talk often about the idea of that our mind leans a certain way. Explain that. This is the best way really to get in touch with the awakened mind, which is right there with you always, but again, we ignore it. As we wake up, our minds are leaning, and it has to do with that preference again that I was just talking about, where the great way doesn't have any preferences, and to the extent that we're not picking and choosing, the mind isn't leaning. So it's a matter of really getting in touch with that, noticing your own mind. You can feel the pull, you can feel the attachment or the aversion uh, that might be going on within your mind, rejecting, you know, shunning uh, one thing or another or a person or whatever else. And being drawn toward another, where you allow yourself to act out of that rather than out of the whole. In Buddhism, plain and simple, I talk about this as uh, really what we can do is called the mind that knows everything. And of course, in, in terms of the conceptual, we can't know everything. It's just too much. And it's just, it's just a, a sheer impossibility. But we can do that which is equivalent, which is is knowing the whole. And and this is this matter of being aware in any given moment, uh, particularly when you're interacting with others. Say, if you can detect some pull of your mind, you're trying to bring about certain results or certain ends and this sort of thing. This is what the Buddha meant by avoid what is unwholesome. Just see if you can stay away uh, you know, from this sort of thing. And to the extent that we can do this, our own mind now, it doesn't lean. It's not leaning toward this. It isn't. 
the disposition of mind isn't constantly shifting uh, like that. And, uh, and, and this is uh, characteristic of an awakened mind or a mind of, of totality and wholeness and understanding. And so that is a very easy thing to say. Easy to say, yeah. <laughs> right? So it's, it's a lifetime of uh, practice. A, li- a lifetime but, of practice, yeah, exactly. But, but this is what most distinguishes uh, a Buddha or an awakened person. And a Buddha is a person, a human being who's awake. Uh, but this is what most distinguishes uh, one who's awake from, from one who's caught up in uh, confusion, uh, is this matter of, um, well, this disposition of mind, the leaning of, of mind. Uh, the one who's awake, the, the mind doesn't lean. Uh, or their inclination of mind is, you could say, zero. It's vertical. It's, you know, it's not leaning. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's characteristic of an awakened mind. And you would say, I think... Uh, putting words in your mouth, that we can't make our mind go this direction or that direction or not lean or yank right. it back up straight or push it back in. The, yeah. That what we can do is see yeah. that our mind is leaning and yeah. and come back to trying to be awake here and now. That is the the best way to get to the point where we have a mind that doesn't lean is simply to see that it's leaning versus Just simply see. judging it, pushing it, forcing it. By the same token, and we also don't try to make it not lean. That doesn't work. That's more leaning, actually. So it's just it is simply a matter of seeing. And and when I when I'm writing uh, that word seeing, uh, th- this is when I'll italicize the yep. word. To distinguish it from our ordinary seeing where we're seeing an object. Here, what we're seeing is totality or the mind of totality and uh, in the way in which um, things might be entering into it that, you know, the conceptual, the constructs, the, the inclinations and this sort of thing. We, we can see that and, uh, and, then, and then we can stop or we can learn to do that. That, that takes some time. But the way, the way that we learn it too is, is through just acquaintance with this, tuning into it and becoming uh, aware of what's going on, we start to realize all the pain and confusion and anger and anxiety and, you know, that <laughs> that go along with that and, you know, the hatred and all of that. The mind then can become more supple and open and magnanimous and tolerant. Uh, and uh, that's, the, that's kind of the promise of uh, learning to live without being caught by your, uh, your inclinations. Yeah. So we're near the end of our time here. I'd love to have you tell the story about the 84 problems. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sometimes people get a little confused about this, but it, it's about a, a man who, who heard of the Buddha, his teachings, and heard that he was a wise man and all of this. And the man thought, well, you know, I'm going to go talk with him. I have certain problems here that maybe he can help me with. And so the man went to see the Buddha and the Buddha patiently sat and listened to him. And, and the man, when it turned out he was a farmer, like the wise Chinese farmer, but this guy maybe wasn't that man. But he said, you know, I, I'm a farmer and I like farming, but sometimes, uh, you know, it rains too much or it doesn't rain enough and my crops uh, fail or I don't get the yields I want. And, you know, and the Buddha's listening. And the man says, you know, and I'm married, and I have a wife. She's a good wife. I, I love her, but uh, sometimes she nags me too much, you know. 
And uh, he says, I have kids, and uh, they're great kids, but uh, sometimes they don't show me enough respect, you know. <laughs> anyway, the, the guy's just going on like this, like any of us could. You know, we all have uh, difficulties and problems in our life, and that's what the Buddha said. Uh, I can't help you. And the man said, well, what do you mean? He said, I thought you were a, a great teacher. And he, he says, well, we all have problems, the Buddha said. And... Uh, he says, as a matter of fact, uh, 83 problems. We all have 80, 83. Just sometimes people get hung up on the number, but it just means a lot of problems. <laughs> and, uh, and and then the Buddha said, well, maybe you can solve one of them. But if you do, there'll be another one just pops right back in its place. And no matter what, it's always 83. Or you always have, there's going to be problems, is what he's saying. And a man just kind of kind of blew up at him. And I said, well, what good is your, is your teaching, he said then. And the Buddha said, well, maybe it'll help you with the 84th problem. The 84th problem, said the man. And, and he said, what's that? And the Buddha said, well, you don't want to have any problems. And, uh, and this is what we can learn to do. It isn't like, uh, you know, we go to this heavenly place or whatever, where everything is just hunky-dory and and wonderful from then on. That's just not reality. It's not. It's not life. Uh, it'll never be that way. But what we can learn to do is to not be. And this. This is now appealing to this mind of of totality. This this wholesome mind, the mind of the whole, as opposed to the splintered mind and the divided mind. We can learn uh, to to find this. So even in this world of apparent differences and things coming and going and changing uh, all around us. Uh, we can learn to uh, live in this space without being tossed about, um, you know. And and so this is what the Buddha uh, promised. This is what he teaches. This is what he helps us with. Yeah, I love that idea that we all have problems and that they're not going. They're not going away. Yeah. And I think that's just such a great thing to recognize and then realizing that most of the suffering comes from us wanting there to be no problems. I just think it's such a profound, <laughs> profound story. It's a little different than Jay-Z's song, 99 Problems, and uh, beep, ain't one, but we'll, uh, that'll be for the more modern listeners, unless you're a big Jay-Z fan, which I don't think so. I, no, I, I really don't know what you're talking about there, but I... <laughs> I know, I couldn't resist it. But I think, it. I, I, think I got the image, it, it's a It's a hip-hop star, a rap star, so... Ah, uh-huh. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I really appreciated talking with you. I've appreciated your writing over the years, so it was a real pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you, Eric. It was, it was good to be here. Okay, take care. You too. Right. Bye. Bye now. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.